Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. In this episode, we focus on the concept of the Kingdom of Heaven and the Sermon on the Mount. Jeremy Bacon explains the importance of understanding the concept of the Kingdom and how it is intertwined throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jeremy talks about the various meanings of heaven in the New Testament while also discussing the relevance of the Kingdom of Heaven in the present life. Now, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and with no further ado, here it is. Welcome to Sermon on the Mount. I'm Jeremy Bacon, and the purpose of this channel is to unpack little snippets of the Sermon on the Mount to help you hear what Jesus is saying to you. In this video, I want to focus on the idea of the kingdom. I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. When Jesus is going around giving a one-sentence summary of his message, that one sentence involves the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In the Sermon on the Mount itself, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the kingdom, the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the sermon ends with the kingdom. At the end of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The sermon is shot through with the theme of the kingdom. So if we're going to understand what Jesus is trying to do here, we need to understand the concept of the kingdom. Matthew actually tries to help us here, but we usually just ignore him. In most of the New Testament, when they talk about the kingdom, they call it the kingdom of God. Matthew does describe it that way a couple times, just so we know, you know we're all talking about the same thing. But overwhelmingly, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. I think we tend to skip over that because we don't really have a clear idea of what the New Testament means by heaven either. This is a huge subject. Um, In the book I wrote, Sermon on the Mount, there's actually a whole chapter that tries to unpack uh, what the New Testament means by the word heaven. We can start by clarifying some things that heaven is not. Um, First of all, the New Testament does not use heaven as a figure of speech for God himself. I I mention that because I've heard it a lot, but when I looked at every time the New Testament uses the Greek word for heaven, I didn't find that anywhere. It's never used that way unless you assume that that's what it means in the phrase kingdom of heaven. But that's that's as circular as it gets. That's the phrase we're trying to understand. So how does the New Testament use the word heaven? Here's a surprise. I could only find one time in the entire New Testament when it uses the word heaven to refer to something that is unambiguously future. It's uh, Matthew 8, 11. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Clearly a future thing. So yes, there is a future element to heaven. But that is almost never what the New Testament writers are concerned about. Now, the word heaven is, is not a technical word, like a word that means one and only one thing, like esophagus. It means one and only one thing. The word heaven is not like that. It can have a whole spectrum of meanings. In Greek, heaven can be, first of all, the place where the birds fly. Secondly, heaven can be the place where the stars are. And third, heaven can be the place where God is. In fact, I think that's probably what Paul means in 2 Corinthians when he mentions the third heaven. Not the place where the birds fly, not the place where the stars are, but the place where God is. That's the heaven we want to talk about. Now, it can be called God's kingdom because he's in charge there. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God is in charge there, things aren't broken. Everything works the way it's supposed to. Jesus' miracles are meant to demonstrate what that's like. At one point in Luke, Jesus says, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what did Jesus' miracles do? They took some part of this world that is broken and they fixed it. They made it the way it's supposed to be. And once the thing or person has been made whole, Jesus says, look, that is what the kingdom is like. This idea of the kingdom is a totally different worldview. There's the world we live in, the world that we see, and that world is broken. If you aren't sure about that, just live a little longer and you'll see. But there is another layer of reality, the kingdom of God, that isn't broken. And that layer of reality can affect this one. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is breaking in. Or, as he puts it, it has come near. Now, when God's kingdom breaks in, it fixes things. The basic meaning of salvation is to be made whole. In the Sermon on the Mount, the thing that Jesus is trying to make whole is you. But there is paradox to this idea of the kingdom. 
The theologians say that it is now, but not yet. So yes, it is breaking in now. It can make things whole now, but we're not going to see things at 100%. That's not yet. This world is still broken, and that won't change until Jesus comes back. So there is hope for now. Things can get better, but our ultimate hope is future, when everything will be made new. As Revelation 21 pictures it, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Is the kingdom, is Christianity itself relevant for this life or the next one? It's not a dichotomy. It's both. But we are still in this life. To us, Jesus says, don't be grounded in this old age that is passing away, but in the new age that is breaking in. Or, in his words, seek first the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? What does a broken life that is being transformed into the life of the kingdom look like? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to that question. Jesus begins this sermon with one of the most famous introductions of all time. The Beatitudes are so rich that sometimes they get an entire book just by themselves. The more I think about the Beatitudes, the more they remind me of a podcast I heard about how to appreciate a work of art. Um, the first tip for appreciating a work of art, like say a, a painting, is to look at it from all different angles. For instance, get Get right up close. See what the artist did with the brush strokes. Then you can look at different specific parts of the painting and kind of see what's going on in, in this part. And look over here and see what's going on in this part, this part. Then after looking at it up close, step back and look at the whole thing. But even then, you can look at it from different angles, and it may look one way straight on, but you may see it completely differently from this side or from this side. The second tip is to take time and just sit with it. See how the painting makes you feel. You know, 
How does it connect with you? What does it spark in you? Now, this way of approaching a work of art is way different than the way you would approach something like a diagram. A diagram is trying to present you with information. You can analyze it to try to understand what it's saying. Now, academic-type people, the folks who write commentaries and theology books, naturally have an analytical bent. They tend to default to approaching the Beatitudes like a diagram. They treat Jesus like he's some kind of Greek philosopher or logician, and they try to systematize the Beatitudes, often trying to find the underlying theme that holds them all together. Usually, the framework they come up with works really well for two or three of the Beatitudes, but the further they go with it, the more things start to feel forced. I mean, to get the final few Beatitudes into their framework, they really have to bend and twist and squeeze and just try to cram that thing in there until that particular Beatitude has been turned into something that is really different than what it is. I'll give you some examples. It's cute to call the Beatitudes the Beatitudes. But that is just a horrible accident of English. Beatitude comes from the Latin and has nothing to do with the words be or attitudes. But the basic idea here is that Jesus is saying that this is what we should be. This is the character we should strive to develop in ourselves. Well, that makes sense of a bunch of the ones in the middle. Blessed are the merciful, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, sure. But then you get to blessed are the pure in heart, and that starts to sound like a pretty big ask. And then you get to the rest, and it, the rest really seem forced. I mean, mourning or being poor in spirit? That's not really an aspect of your character. That's more something that happens to you. So, that doesn't really work. More theologically-minded folks try the framework of the great reversal. Those on the bottom end up on top. And that, and that is a major theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus welcomes the rejects, the people you wouldn't expect in the kingdom. Well, that really fits the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the persecuted. That fits them great but it starts to fall apart in the middle. <clears throat> What's so bad about being pure in heart? Who has anything against peacemakers? You know, not those guys all keeping us from eating each other. I mean, there, there's, there's no reversal there. The more we let the Beatitudes speak for themselves, the more they resist any effort to categorize or systematize. Because Jesus is not a Greek philosopher. He's a Hebrew rabbi. He's not drawing a diagram. He's painting a picture. 
Now, saying he's painting a picture, that's a metaphor. But if we say that these Beatitudes are a work of art, I'm not sure there's much metaphor there at all. This is a work of art, and we need to approach it that way. Now, getting up close, looking at the specific parts of the picture, um, that's uh, what I do a ton in the book. There's a, a link in the show notes and at the end if you want to get a copy. But if we step back, we can still look at the whole picture and at least ask, what is the subject of this work of art? What, what is it about? And that's easy. The subject of this work of art is the kingdom. That's how Matthew frames this whole thing. First beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last beatitude ends exactly the same way. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is what these beatitudes are about. So if we step back and look at this painting head on, it is a portrait of the kingdom. Look at the quote-unquote rewards, the, the second half of each beatitude, and you could put together a pretty good list of the blessings of the kingdom. Call it the kingdom package, and it looks pretty good. But we can also step to the side and look at this portrait from a different angle. From a different angle, the beatitudes are a portrait of the values of the kingdom. So the B-attitude folks are not entirely wrong. Um, the blessings do say something about what the kingdom values and what the kingdom doesn't value. Step to the other side, and we see that these Beatitudes are also about people. Blessed are those who. They form a portrait of a citizen of the kingdom. But don't fall back into a diagram mindset. This isn't a checklist that everyone needs to complete. It is a piece of art. Sit with it. Where does it speak to you? A lot of the Beatitudes in the middle may be attractive. You know, it's like, I'd, I'd like to be a person like that, but often I'm just not. And Jesus says, in the kingdom, you can be. Or, Look at the first few. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And you feel, I've been there. Jesus says, then you're exactly who I'm looking for. Because Jesus doesn't just want us to see the kingdom. He wants to invite us into it. He's not just calling us to appreciate this work of art. He's calling us to become a part of it. If you want to stick with us as we dig into the details, hit like, subscribe. There's a 
Link for the book in the show notes and at the end. Until next time. Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I hope it was encouraging to you. Coming up next week, we've got a special interview with Jeremy Bacon and Daniel McCoy, and they're going to dive deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. So stay with us next week. It's going to be some really great conversations. Um, here at Renew, um, we are all about disciple making. Our mission is to renew the teachings of Jesus to fuel disciple making, and that comes in the forms of podcasts, books, articles, blogs, whatever you need. Renew has it. So go check out renew.org if you are interested in any of our content. Once again, thank you for listening. I hope you guys have a great day.